Hello, this is William Chamberlain of the Popular Materials Department. Today we have a special edition of the Pockmatic Podcast. I'm interviewing, just in time for Halloween, horror director and interpreter of H.P. Lovecraft, Stuart Gordon. Mr. Gordon has directed such films as Reanimator, From Beyond, King of the Ants, and Space Truckers. Space Truckers will be showing Saturday, October 1st at 2 p.m. at the Downtown Public Library on 615 Church Street in the Auditorium. Now, on to the interview. Okay, the first question I want to ask is, in the 1970s, you founded the Organic Theater Company, and you were the artistic director. I'm just curious, why did you call it the Organic Theater Company? Well, you know, theater is an organic process. It's a living thing, and um, so organic seemed like a good word for it. You know, it's something that grows and develops, you know, interacts with the audience. So that's why we got chose that name. It also comes from Stanislavski, who referred to, I think he's the one who first stated that theater was an organic process. One of the plays of the organic theater companies is Bleacher Bums, and it's uh-huh. been conceived by Joe Mantegna of Criminal Minds fame. Uh-huh. It was written by you and nine other writers. Um, could you discuss the origins of the play, and how did you direct it with so many writers involved? Well, actually, it was, it was created through improvisation. And the writers are, are the actors in the company. Uh, and what we did was, you know, Joe came up with the idea, and uh, it was based on this group that he had observed at Wrigley Field in the bleachers. You know, this, this, there were a bunch of people who all hung out together, uh, and they were a very interesting bunch. It was, uh, you know, there was a group of gamblers who were betting on every pitch, whether it would be a strike or a ball. There was a, a couple of blind guys there who wanted to be play-by-play announcers and were listening to the game on the radio and then announcing it as it went along. It was such a crazy group uh, that it seemed like an ideal subject for a play. So what we did was the the whole theater company came and sort of sat around these guys, and we listened and kind of actually tape-recorded some of their conversations uh, without them being aware of it. After a while, they started getting nervous. I think they thought we were the police or something. And uh, then we'd come back to the theater, and we would improvise based on what we had observed and that's how the play was created. I was listening to the audio commentary to your movie, King of Ants, and George uh-huh. Went, who played Norm on Cheers, mentioned you directed a demented version of The Three Little Pigs at Second City. <laughs> uh, what was the demented version like? Well, we did it as a horror movie. You know, I mean, when you think about it, The Three Little Pigs is pretty horrifying, you know. And so, uh, you know, there, the idea was that... Uh, in our version of it, the, the big bad wolf was just kind of like something like the, like Michael Myers in Halloween or Jason in, uh, you know, Friday the 13th. He was this sort of nameless thing. He was just big and bad, and uh, nobody knew what he was. You know, at one point they say he's a genetically uh, engineered killing machine. <laughs> but we had, uh, you know, we had blood effects in it. We had uh, one of the little pigs uh, is, is about to be looks like she's about to be raped and her clothes are torn off of her and she's got six tits. <laughs> uh, so it was, it was pretty demented. I think, I think that's a, an apt description. Uh, sorry I missed that production. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when you moved from directing theater to directing movies, what difficulties did you have? Well, I, you know, really didn't know. I had never gone to film school, so there were some basic things about directing movies I knew nothing about, things like screen direction, 
which is sort of like the grammar of film, you know, that if someone is on the left of the frame and in one shot, they have to be on the left of the frame in the next one as well. Or if someone's going left to right, they have to continue moving in that direction. So when you're designing your shots, everything has to sort of follow uh, the screen direction. And that was taught to me by my director of photography, Mac Alberg, who shot Reanimator. And uh, I still call him the professor because he was my film teacher, really. Okay. Somebody once asked the writer Robert Block, why do you write weird tales or horror stories? And he replied, well, if you can't beat them, join them. Is that why you want to direct <laughs> horror movies? Well, I've always you know, been a big fan of horror movies. Uh, I think it might have been based on the fact that when I was a little kid, my parents would not allow me to see them. You know, they thought that I would have nightmares, and it turned out they were right because I would sneak off and see them from time to time, and then I'd have terrible nightmares. Maybe the reason I'd make horror movies is to get revenge for, for all of the, the movies that traumatized me. That's possible. Somebody once said it's a, like a cycle of abuse. But I also like to think that it's um, because I know what scares me, it's, make, it's easy to scare others. And so I can kind of use myself as the, uh, as the guinea pig. Um, you said you read H.P. Lovecraft as a teenager. Do you remember the first story of Mr. Lovecraft you read, and what was it about that H.P. Lovecraft's writing that made an impression on you? Well, I, I, I do remember, and the first story was uh, Dreams in the Witch House, which is about a, um, you know, a 17th century witch that comes through the wall of this guy's bedroom and grabs him by the wrist and yanks him out of his bed and takes him off to do all of these terrible things, and that uh, made a big impression on me. You know, the uh, I think I might have even locked my windows, and you know, that night after I read that story. And it, you made an excellent master of his horrors with that. Yeah, yeah, it was great to finally be able to do it. It was one of the stories, you know, that is one of my favorites actually of his. Um, when you're adapting H.P. Lovecraft to the screen, do you ha do you or have you ever used Mr. Lovecraft's essay notes on writing weird fiction as a guide? Yes, actually, and I've read his, his notes, and I think one of the things that he talks about a lot in that is the importance of atmosphere. And uh, that, I think, is really very, very true about his stories. Uh, you know, one of the things I discovered about Lovecraft is that the places that he's describing in his stories are all real places. You know, the shunned house and, uh, you know, the, the, the belfry of that church and so forth they all exist in Providence, Rhode Island. And those are things that Lovecraft could see every day. And what he does is by, by capturing those things so precisely, when he starts throwing in the weird things, you start, you know, because he's been so uh, specific about everything, you kind of believe the weird things as well. And, you know, I've noticed that it's a, it's a technique that Stephen King also, also uses. About two years ago, I met the illustrator, William Stout, and he was showing me his sketchbook, and Mr. Stout asked me if I ever saw Reanimator, and I said yes, and then he showed me a sketch of the infamous morgue scene that involved the head of Dr. Hill <laughs> and the yeah. character of Megan Halsey, and Mr. Stout stated that this sketch got the movie made. Is that the way you remember it? Or? Yeah, it's absolutely true. I actually have that picture right on my office wall. I'm looking at it right now. <laughs> and how did you come to cast Ted Sorrell as Dr. Edward Pretorius in From Beyond? He was just perfect for that part. Yeah, wasn't he great? You know, he was brought to the uh, audition by our casting director, and he just really had the right combination of, you know, kind of intelligence, but also the sort of 
he kind of there was something about him that was a little sort of kinky as well, which fit the character perfectly. I've heard you uh, use this quote. It's an H.P. Lovecraft quote, and you've quoted it a couple of times. It's, man lives on an island of ignorance surrounded by things he is completely unaware of. And even though it's written by David Mamet, you could say the same thing about Edmund and the character Sean Crawley in King of the Ants created by Charles Higgins. Yes, Higgins, yeah. Yeah, it's true. I think there is something of, you know, both movies do have a kind of Lovecraftian feel in places. While we're on the topic of David Mamet, you directed his first play, Sexual Perversity, in Chicago. Could you talk about how you two came to meet and work together? Well, David, you know, I met David, we were both in our mid-twenties at the time, and uh, he was this guy who was giving me a new script to read every week. And he kept saying to me, you know, he'd hand me a script, and he said, this script's going to win the Pulitzer Prize. And I would laugh, and then about three years later, he actually did win the Pulitzer Prize. You know, he was a guy who really kind of knew who he was right from the beginning. His early plays, though, were interesting. And, you know, he'd given a copy of one of them to Mike Nichols, who had said, these are great characters, now write them a play. You know, he, his, he didn't really have stories in his plays initially. They were just kind of conver- people having conversations. But the conversations were, were fascinating, and the characters were intriguing. And it was the story that was kind of where he sort of needed help. What we ended up doing with sexual perversity was taking two of his plays and combining them into one. He had written a play that was called Sexual Perversity, but it was just a series of conversations between different people about sex. But he wrote a second play that was called Danny Shapiro and His Search for the Mystery Princess, which uh, really had a story. It was about a relationship, a guy meeting a girl and falling in love, and then the two of them breaking up. And... um, what we did was we, we used that as the storyline and had uh, each of them give each of them a, a friend who could sort of get into these very cynical conversations about sex. You know, so we were able to use some of the conversations from the original sexual perversity. And that's how that play uh, ended up in its final form. You directed a movie called Robo Jocks, and it was written by Joe Haldeman, a science fiction writer who wrote yeah. The Forever War. How did you choose him to write the script, or how did he become involved? Well, I was a big fan of The Forever War, and as a matter of fact, at the Organic Theater, we did an adaptation of The Forever War on stage, and Joe wrote the adaptation. So I had gotten to know him through the, my work in the theater. And when it came time to do Robo Jocks, I thought, you know, see, he's a, he's a great science fiction writer, but he's also very... Uh, aware of the sort of technology and so forth, and uh, as well as having been a, a Vietnam vet, so he understood what it's like to put your life on the line. So it's, he seemed like the ideal person to write the script. To you know, it was a the concept is kind of a silly concept, really, when you think about it. You know, the idea of guys in controlling these gigantic robots and having these sort of single combats to you know decide the fate of nations. Uh, but I thought if we could get somebody of Joe's caliber to write the script that it could really kind of, he he could make it real for the audience. Years ago, watching George Romero on a Dick Cavett show, and he said he came out of the 60s, and he was, his horror style came out of the artwork of the 60s. You mentioned the Vietnam War, and Mm -hmm. you also came out of, you know, during that turbulent time in Chicago. I was just wondering, did it have the same influence on you? Well, it did. I think, you know, you know, going through the 60s, you, you had to sort of take a political stand. You know, which side were you on? 
it was, you know, and, and as a matter of fact, I think we're still fighting those battles today. You know, the reason our country is so divided, I think, is that it's, it goes all the way back to the 60s. So since the 60s, I think all I've been aware that all of the films that I make have a political message and, uh, you know, try to make sure that that message gets across. You co-wrote a screenplay called The Body Snatchers, and of course it was based on Jack Finney's novel. I'm curious, what was the collaboration between you and Abel Farrar like? And I know you watched Driller Killer before you made Rihanna. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I talked to Abel a few times about it. You know, um, he came into the process after I'd left, so we didn't have a lot of interaction. But I was very, very pleased with, with what he did with the film. We had a few, you know, kind of change. You know, he he had different ideas about some of the things. Um, he actually, you know, in, in our version, we got into the idea that you know, these pod people were actually plant made out of plant material. And so, at one point in the story, we had the one of the the, the heroines, you know, spraying weed killer on them, and it was dissolving them. And Abel went back to the book and said, "No, no, it says in the book." That they are, act, act, you know, they are um, duplicating, you know, cell, cell for cell, the human being. So they're not plants. They are, they're, they're creating, you know, people really. So he dropped all of that material. And I had a few conversations about that with him. Uh, he kept calling the the um, pod people Martians for some reason. I'm not sure why. <laughs> Um, of course, we're showing your movie Space Truckers. Could you tell the people who are listening to our podcast what the movie's about? Well, it's uh, it's set you know um, a couple of hundred years in the future, and it's the, the idea is that we are colonizing our solar system, and the guys who are you know what it involves is bringing supplies to the different planets, and the guys who are doing that are not any different than the truck drivers of today, you know, who are carrying our goods across country or even transporting them in containers across the, the oceans and so forth. So uh, they're working-class guys. So Space Truckers is a, is a kind of working-class space movie. In Space Truckers, Dennis Hopper plays an independent trucker, and you once described yourself as the opposite of Hollywood filmmakers. Were you trying to make a correlation between Dennis Hopper character and yourself? Yeah, you know, he's fighting against the big corporations, which, you know, I kind of feel like I'm doing the same thing because, it's, you know, the studios are all now owned by these huge, you know, mega corporations. And, you know, they have their own agendas and so forth. And, you know, us little guys, some, you know, they're trying to sort of squeeze us out the same way they're trying to squeeze out Dennis Hopper and Space Truckers. So, yes, that's a good point. Several of your movies, Stuck, King of the Ants, Castle Freak, Fortress, The Pit and the Pendulum, have the themes of human beings being inhumane to other human beings. What's the attraction to that thing? Well, I think that the you know the worst monsters are human beings or people. You know, I, I think that um, you know people are much scarier than werewolves or zombies or vampires. You know, the things that we do to each other. And I'm beginning to realize that the things that happen in real life are much more terrifying than anything that you can imagine. I know you like to do research when you make a movie. How much is The Pit and the Pendulum historically accurate? Well, it's pretty accurate uh, in a lot of ways. You know, all of the torture that's portrayed there uh, actually existed, with the exception of The Pendulum, which I could not find any uh, examples of in, in the Inquisition. I think that's a creation from uh, Mr. Poe himself. But, you know, there was an exhibit that was touring the world called Inquisition that, that exhibited all of the various torture devices. And the point that that exhibit made was that most of those 
methods of torture are still in use, and that we have a, in, in the pit and the pendulum a scene where a woman essentially is being waterboarded, which was an old technique where they would stick a funnel down a person's throat and pinch their nose closed and just pour water down them and essentially drown, be drowning someone. And that's a technique that's still being used, unfortunately. Oliver Reed has a role in the pit and the pendulum, and we're huge Oliver Reed fans here. Oh, we're just yeah. curious, do you have any memorable stories of working with Mr. Reed? Oh, sure. Well, he was, a, he was what a character he was. You know, um, he was coming to the castle. You know, we shot this all in a castle in, um, between Rome and Florence in a little town called Jove, and he showed up. Uh, while we were in Rome looking at dailies, and we got a call saying, you know, Mr. Reed has asked that every bottle of wine in the castle be placed on the banquet table uh, and, so that he can drink them all. <laughs> and, we got, and we got back there and found him sitting at this gigantic table, and the table is covered with bottles of wine, and he's just going through them all one by one. And, enjoy, and, 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 and was very ha cheerfully you know, said, you know, hey, join us, you know, join me, and let's, let's, let's see if we can get through these, all these bottles. And he got so drunk that he was unable to get up to, to go pee, so he would just grab an empty bottle and piss into the bottle at the table. <laughs> and, and, and then he sh had to show us the tattoo that was on the head of his penis, which, uh, you know, he said uh, were eagle claws. <laughs> and and uh, his wife said, I thought those were uh, lightning bolts. <laughs> but by the end of it, we were all completely, totally blastered and this went on all weekend and monday morning rolled around and i you know kind of stumbled onto the set going you know is, is, is mr reed here and is he oh yes he's already he's in costume and makeup and ready to go and i walked in to see him and he was completely sober and he, we shot his scene he knew every line and incredibly professional it was kind of like I, what i got to realize was that the weekend was his time and he could do whatever he wanted and but when he was on the set he was uh, Kind of uh, the, the most professional guy there. I was just curious. I know Peter O'Toole was originally set to play the um, Lance Ickerson part. Was there yes. a disappointment when he didn't get to do it? Well, I was. I actually had a chance to have a lunch with Peter O'Toole, and he was just charming. And he, you know, I discovered that he was not only a, uh, you know, very very knowledgeable about the Inquisition itself, but also a huge horror movie fan. And uh, you know, we had a great discussion about it all, and. So I, I was a little disappointed, although I thought Lance uh, Henriksen did an amazing job as Torquemada. So it's hard to imagine anyone else doing that role after working with Lance. With the exception of Fortress, I've watched all your movies either on cable, video, or DVD, and I was just curious, why can't your movies get a proper theatrical release? Well, you know, that's the part of, it, of the process that you really have no control over as a filmmaker. You know, I sometimes think it's like you hand your little baby to somebody and then they just sort of toss it out the window, you know. Sometimes, you, you know, I, I think it's kind of like the luck of the draw. If the studio kind of appreciates it, then you can get a good release. If they don't, you know, then you're lucky to get whatever you get. The thing that I like, though, is that I feel sometimes that home video uh, allows, you know, the, the movies to reach their audience despite bad distribution. It just takes longer. And I'm glad that people are still watching my movies and appreciating them. And, you know, they're discovering now on, you know, you know, this being streamed through Netflix and so forth. And, uh, you know, it doesn't matter to me how they watch the movie as long as they do watch it.
You directed a one-man show about the life of Edgar Allan Poe called Nevermore, starring Jeffrey Combs, and I'm curious, did you ever film the performance? We actually videotaped it, but it's really just for a, a record of it. I, it's not a, a, at a level of quality that we really could you know, put out into the marketplace. But maybe at some point we will. I would love to do a, a proper filming of it, because his performance is just extraordinary. And we're still doing the show and, and touring it and so forth. Come to Nashville, please. I would love that. I would love it. <laughs> invite us. Oh, come on. <laughs> please. And you can bring a reanimator, the musical, too. Because we are Music City, USA, I'm sure. That's for sure. Yeah. Huh? Nashville. Yeah, we could do it at the Grand Ole Opry or something. I, I like it. <laughs> uh, what are you working on next? Well, I'm working on a couple of things. I'm working on a script by Dan O'Bannon, who wrote... Alien. You know, he passed away about a year ago, but this is a project that he and I had talked about for a long time, and it's called The Men. And the basic idea of it is that all men are actually aliens that came to Earth half a million years ago and have convinced women that we're necessary for the reproductive function. It's a, it's a very twisted little script. Just curious, are you, I've read once that you had an idea about it was a cat and mouse story about a baby versus a dog. Oh wow! And are you? Is that ever going to be filmed? It sounded intriguing. It was. Yeah, it was the first script I ever wrote. Wrote with um, Dennis Paley, my writing partner, and it was about a little dog who gets jealous of the new baby and tries to kill it. So it becomes this battle between the baby and the dog. One of the basic rules of filmmaking is don't work with animals or babies. <laughs> <laughs> So it's, it would be like a really difficult movie to make, I think. Oh, animated. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and just one other question. I was reading about your theater, and I'm a huge fan of Roald Dahl, and I know you did a few of your productions at the Organic Theater, and I read that you got to meet Roald Dahl once. I did, yeah. We had dinner with him, and uh, I got to spend time with him. It was wonderful. I mean, he was a, kind of a curmudgeon. I mean, it was, it was, his, he was married to Patricia Neal, the movie star at the time. And the first, you know, she came and saw our show and liked it and then brought her husband to see it. And as, a, as sort of a tribute to Roald Dahl, we served a leg of lamb because of his story called, um, I think it's... I lamb think, to the Slaughter. Lamb to the Slaughter, yeah, which is uh, about a woman who murders her husband with a frozen leg of lamb. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, he did not get it. But Patricia Neal did, which was funny. You know, it was, she had to point it out to him that we were. It was the, the meal was in honor of him, really. Uh, well, I'm just got to say, sir, it was a thrill, and um, we re I really enjoyed talking to you. And well, it's a pleasure talking to you, and I'm really glad you're showing Space Truckers. That's a movie of mine that I don't think gets as much uh, love as it should. I would like to thank Stuart Gordon for doing the interview. Remember, come see his movie Space Truckers October 1st at 2 p.m. at the Downtown Public Library on 615 Church Street in the main auditorium. See it on our big screen, and remember, it's free. <laughs>